Welcome to You Only Guide Me By Surprise, a suite of sonic somnambulism for those interested in poetry, peripety, magic, or mystery. I'm Landry Ayers. Today, a creative treatise of sorts. Whether you're someone who likes to create things or is just curious about how people do so, I hope there's something here for you. And I hope you enjoy it. Okay? Here we go. Twilight creeps on the horizon, the dusk chasing close behind, ever pursuing the fading glow. You and your party have been walking for six days. Your boots are mud-caked, cloaks soaked with water from a river forded. Eusidrus, the babbling turtle wizard, rambles on about his sore back, while Jin sharpens her daggers and keeps an eye on your rear. She'd rather be practicing her headshots, but your cleric, Zephyrine, insists you find a campsite more secluded than the woods, for fear that the authorities in the last town spotting the smoke and hunting you down. She looks at you as she reminds everyone of this. So you burned down a tavern. What's the problem? The barkeep was poisoning patrons and sacrificing their bodies to bane the Stripe Emperor, god of tyranny, conquest, and might. He deserved it. But just then, whilst bickering amongst yourselves as to where to settle down for the evening, you spot a pair of pointed green ears creeping over a hillside, just obscured by the brush surrounding you. You duck down as they round the corner and see a goblin with a pug-like face. They have a patch covering one eye and a quiver filled with gnarled arrows slung over their shoulder. Shushing your companions, you wait for them to pass. But just when it grows quiet again, another pair of ears sprouts up behind the first, sweeping the surrounding area as if to keep a lookout. But they aren't the only figures you see. They're dragging two bodies behind them. Men, bloodied and unconscious. Zephyrin looks at you, knowingly, and you sigh, aware of what that look means. You tiptoe through the brush, avoiding the snap of a twig or crunching leaves. At the bottom of a gulch, the goblins find a few compatriots underneath a small overhang, two sentinels with pole arms greeting them with a salute, before they disappear around a corner. From behind you, you hear the flink of a string on Jin's crossbow, followed by the loading of a bolt. Eusidrus's droning has ceased, as his eyes fill with red. A flaming, crackling sphere conjured in his palm. 
Your pommel glints as you look down at it. The twilight is fading, but the fire in the pit of your stomach roars to life. Ever since I started producing audio stories, I've always felt the need to have something in the works or on the back burner, ready to go or work on at least, after I hit publish on one. A lot of the time, I don't have that. And I get bummed out when that happens because I feel like I'm not creating enough, that I'll never have enough ideas or that I lost some creative spark I once had. I did speech and debate for over a decade of my life, so getting up in front of people and telling a story was something I grew to cherish and really enjoy and and even felt pretty good at. And when that went away, I missed it. I missed that part, at least. I did not miss a lot of the other stuff that went along with it, but I think anyone who does that activity or anything creative for that long will tell you once it stops, it's almost impossible not to notice the void it leaves behind. And I didn't know if I would ever find something like that again. And it was it was really sad for a long time. I'll finish my day job, make dinner, walk the dog, and once I feel I've checked all of the boxes on my list of adulthood obligations, I'm exhausted. And yet, somehow, I still manage to find time to play Dungeons & Dragons with my friends. (laughs) D&D has become one of the most consistent outlets for creative storytelling in my life. I know I've told a story about D&D before, but I sometimes forget that I actually do make stories way more than I give myself credit for. I'm telling them all the time every week almost with my friends and they're not for anyone but us there's a part of me that wishes i could turn it into something maybe not monetize what we make but commodify be able to show it off to everyone sure just because i think what we do is fun and cool and maybe some people will enjoy it when i realized that i thought what was the moment that made me feel like i really was making something of my own that I was also making progress and growing with? And how can I take that and apply it to my other creative work that I really like to do with my audio stories? And I realized someone had already explained it to me. His name is Matt Colville, and he is the founder of MCDM Productions, which is an independent publisher for mostly Dungeons & Dragons resources. And I came to know about Matt because my friend and first ever Dungeon Master recommended his YouTube channel to me, and specifically a series called Running the Game, 
which is about running Dungeons and Dragons for your friends. So from knowing nothing about how to do it to really nitty gritty details about narrative game design, Matt is a great teacher that has been a big influence on how I run my games and helping me figure out what I want and don't want out of the experience. He's also someone who has been able to do paid work in a field that he enjoys for a really long time. So he has a ton of helpful advice on a sort of meta level when it comes to writing, time management, creative endeavors, all stuff that can be applied to both D&D or really any creative work that you might want to do. Some of his videos in the series are specifically about D&D. Uh, he's going to talk about how to design an interesting monster that doesn't just like have two claw attacks and a bite or something. But other times it's about the use of B plots in storytelling or the value of central tension in narrative, the politics of war. My favorite videos in the series tend to lie somewhere in the middle. Advice ostensibly about D&D that can still very easily be translated to other stuff. There's a great video about why verbs are so important in writing adventures, and another on what he calls many fail states, which is basically using failure as an opportunity to move forward with new things in mind. And there is one video of Matt's that to me is a great illustration of what you can do to make something your own and feel like you're actually making progress. And I promise that by the end of this, it will become clear that this Dungeons & Dragons concept is just a stand-in for whatever project you're working on. But first, we have to delve into the dark, doomed depths of the dungeon. You take in your surroundings, the slain bodies of the goblin scouts around you, arrows lodged into the ground at odd angles, the smell of a dying fire drifting from somewhere nearby. You wipe the blood from your sword onto the trampled grass, leaving a signal to those that would investigate that danger lies in wait. Kicking a corpse aside, you notice it lies across a threshold. Thick vines draping down from above cover an archway built into the stone. But the dust on the ground before it has been disturbed. Footprints. Closing your eyes, you focus on the void, and the silence gives way to the chittering of teeth. The steady clang of metal on stone, perhaps a distant scream, followed by a spine-chilling laugh. You signal to the cloaked figures behind you to draw near and brush the umbrage aside before taking a step down into the wet, dark path ahead. The air cools with each step you take. Down you walk, on steps strewn with tattered cloth, crumbling bone and smudged ash. The clanging metal and screaming sounds continue, somewhere beyond deep within. As the chamber below comes into view, in its center you see a large bronze brazier atop a dais, 
The faint glow from the coals inside casts a dim light onto the walls, just barely illuminating ornate triptychs and the beginning of a hallway continuing on the other side. Knights in suits of armor fight an onslaught of beasts and demons, striking down foes with ferocity while the sun hangs in the sky behind them, carving paths of searing light through the smog of battle. All of this carved into dark, wet stone. Eusidrus notices an inscription on the wall amongst the sights, and lighting his torch with the brazier's flame, hoists it aloft to read what he sees are dwarven runes. I swear to fight chaos in all its forms, to uphold order by honor of my word. As he speaks this out loud, Jin places a hand over his mouth before raising a finger to her own. For the metal sounds have stopped, and several footsteps approach. Rounding the corner, two goblins and a large bugbear appear, wielding sharp axes and heavy flails. Catching sight of you in the chamber, they charge. We've always had the dungeon. In fact, it's so important that video game developers and critics have cribbed dungeons as the nomenclature for large, discrete set pieces that contain puzzles, mini-adventures, and story arcs. You know, see Legend of Zelda, Dark Souls, etc., etc. They took that from D&D. They even show up almost identically in pulp adventures like the opening sequence of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Or you can think of the casino in modern heist films like Ocean's Eleven as a dungeon. But when you take a step back, it can be easy to ask, why dungeon? Why not adventure or story arc or some other broken down unit we can use to examine this process? And Matt helpfully urges us not to be distracted by the word dungeon because there are so many things that can be a dungeon that we don't use that word for. Dungeons, at a bird's eye level, are about a type of narrative utility rather than any distinct architectural design. He uses the example of the Egyptian pyramids, and for now we're going to ignore the ingrained colonialist tropes inherent in plundering the tombs of an ancient civilization here just for the moment, uh, justified as they are for the purpose of this analysis. These structures housed valuable items, the bodies of the dead. They also had trap doors, winding pathways, chutes to strange places, traps, things to thwart burglars because they housed valuables, and all of the hallmarks of a stereotypical dungeon, except for prison cells. You see, in 1974, when the rules for D&D were published, The only advice Dungeon Masters had in the book was you need six levels of a dungeon minimum. When you look at the rules for what that entails, it's actually quite a bit. (laughs) Um, Matt argues you actually only need five encounters or five things to impede the player's progress or challenge them. A battle. There's goblins. Fight them. Or traps, puzzles, difficult terrain to traverse, anything that stops characters from just walking in and out with treasure, that's conflict, and conflict makes things interesting. So in his first ever running the game video, he creates a short three-room dungeon for beginners called the Delian Tomb. 
He then fills these three rooms with five encounters. And by the end of a 10 minute video, you have a ready-made beginner dungeon that is easy and fun to play. And that is the first thing I latched onto. When I think about what was hard for me creatively, what stopped me from getting what I wanted done for so long, it was getting started. I would inevitably ask myself, what all do I need? Where do I begin? And what is it that I'm even trying to do? And that brings us to Matt's first lesson in dungeon design that can help you get started. Dungeons distill the game down to its most fun and pure essence, giving everything an adventure needs condensed into one small space and nothing else. The game is Dungeons and Dragons. If you want to get started playing, you gotta have the first thing the game is about. Dragons can come later. D&D can be very complex and has grown to encompass world-spanning adventures, overland travel, vast cities, and so much more. But if you want to learn how to do something or write your first adventure, the dungeon is where to begin. As Matt says, because many people who want to start DMing start to build a world, they never finish and they never start playing. They're never ready because the task they've set themselves is insurmountable. This practicality can help preserve the true, fun heart of the game, leaving you time to enjoy playing with your friends. If you're making a world, there are seemingly endless horizons. It can never truly be finished unless you're a godlike being with no commitments or obligations. Creativity needs boundaries. Dungeons constrain a complex world and are bounded by walls and doors and floors and ceilings. And within these boundaries, you have near infinite space to create. This is really important because you might think that a dungeon is limiting. It has to be a dark prison run by goblins, or a tomb haunted by wraiths, or a crypt filled with undead, when really the game is meant to say, don't worry about the superfluous stuff that the world is concerned with. Focus on the fun. The monsters can be those undead, the goblins or wraiths, sure, and those are cool, but they can be even more than that. Again, in the original Dungeons & Dragons rule set, it says, the dungeon should be designed with numerous levels which sprawl in all directions, not necessarily stack neatly above each other in a straight line. A good one will have no less than a dozen levels down with offshoots and new under construction areas. There's no real limit to the number of levels, nor is there a restriction on their size. Even within the geographic boundaries of the dungeon, you have unimaginably vast opportunities for creativity. And then when you put something into place in the dungeon, that's just the start. The real stories begin when you put it in front of your players. They will take what you thought was a straight path from the first room to the second chamber and finally a large space where you might have a boss battle, and they will more than likely break your carefully designed map with some weird improvised plan you had not thought of. And that can be fun. Embrace the element of play and experimentation. Make stuff up, watch your friends play it, learn what works and doesn't, and ask why. You'll only get better by doing so. 
and I would argue only by doing so. For modern gamers who were used to vast, immersive worlds thanks to video games and modern role-playing scenarios filled out by years of collaborative play, this can seem kind of underwhelming when you describe it. What made the dungeon so fun that it was what the game was all about? Dungeons are fun and helpful because of their discrete nature. Even the most seasoned, open-world video game players can easily get overwhelmed when you say, Here's the world. What do you do? In an open world, if you lose in combat, you can retreat. But in a dungeon, the door may lock behind you. You may be several levels deep underground, separated from the safety of the sunlight by a tattered, barely tethered rope bridge over a dark chasm. It's claustrophobic, dark, mysterious, and magical. There are instantly higher stakes to hook people. A goblin's body lies unconscious at the foot of the dais, the other poised to attack with its axe raised, but petrified into unmoving, cold stone. The bugbear stands last, and just as it lunges for you from over your right shoulder, a dagger flies, striking it between the eyes. You turn to look behind you and see the outstretched hand of Jin emerge from a shadowed corner as the body thuds to the ground. Zephyrine clutches her holy symbol and begins to walk forward, using the torch to prod at the darkness, lest anything leap out once more. Turning the corner at the end of the wall, she takes a step before you notice a small lip on the next tile of the floor, higher than any other. You grab the scruff of her collar and pull her back just in time, catching her as she collapses into your arms. You point forward silently, calling attention to the discrepancy. And using her staff from a distance, she presses down onto the ground, feeling it slightly give way. When suddenly from around the darkened corner, a large scythe swings out and slashes the air waist high. Good catch. Keeping the hidden pressure plate held in place, Zephyrine shuffles the rest of your party around the corner. When you all hear chanting, Bursts of flame, the rattling of metal chains, and screams growing closer and closer until you descend once more into a low-ceilinged chamber. Inside, it's sparse, except for the handful of shattered marble statues, their pieces strewn about the far end of the room. Amongst the rubble, a figure, hunched with long limbs of pale gray skin in ragged robes, kneels on the ground with their back to you, taking a dark liquid from a small bowl in one hand and tracing odd runes in a circle on the ground. Their cracking voice mutters fragments of sentences with each stroke of their finger. You look to the side and can see a cage with several figures inside. People, their hands tied with rope and chained to a peg driven into the stone. With what little leverage they've managed to find, they rattle the bars, rocking the small prison from side to side, their screams muffled by rags stuffed into their mouths. Eusidrus begins to run to them, but before he's even taken a step, the knelt figure twists their neck to look over their shoulder. 
A raspy, strained voice calls out as loud as it can muster. <sighs> Visitors, please join me. They turn to reveal a face with no skin, just muscle, sinew, and bone, and two eyes of pure, opaque black. They stand and rise to almost seven feet tall, barely avoiding the ceiling of the chamber. Catching sight of this, you are filled with dread and gasp. Where lips would be, you instead see tendon pull back the hidden mechanism of a smile. They drop the bowl of liquid onto the ground, its viscous crimson content slowly filling the cracks in the floor the remnants on their fingertips dripping. I was just about to... Jin screams as she tackles you to the ground, for she was the only one quick enough to notice the muscles of the bloodied hand twitch. Your bodies clattering onto the floor, a streak of fire scorches the low ceiling, and the figure glares before drawing a dagger from their Just as much as you are a dungeon master, you are not the only one telling the story around your table. Players will contribute, picking what elements to focus on, talk amongst themselves, make guesses about the meaning of set dressing you've yet to describe in more detail, and will create the story and find the heart absent your intent. This is a good thing. You just lead them to the area and provide opportunities. A dramatic arc will more than likely emerge totally naturally, if you let it, because the tension and release of an adventure is built into the physical and narrative architecture of a dungeon. Matt lays out why each level is important in a practical sense. When a player walks into the first space of the dungeon, usually an entrance, they are likely going to be either frightened or awestruck. A grand hall of a castle or the ruined nave of a cathedral. The beginning is designed to impress newcomers who have just encountered it. It's setting the stage for the original intent of the space. What strange calamity befell this locale and what horrors await you inside? There's only one way to truly know for yourself. The middle, as Matt points out, is the area where people likely lived and worked in whatever the structure was intended as. There is work and purpose here, not just vibes. But it begins to change and lead to something more. It's like the backstage area at Disney World, the labyrinthine corridors where cast members run around with their heads off, speaking like real people, cursing at visitors, and just as importantly, shooing them off if they were to intrude on this space. Secrets lurk here, only for the worthy, and if you trespass, conflict is bound to happen. The bottom level of the dungeon is the hardest, most challenging portion. It's the Holy of Holies, meant for a specific group and purpose. It likely has a boss, a climax, and stakes. It's a struggle where conflict is broken down to its most basic forms. Then, you gather some rewards if you can, and it's a rush to get out. 
You don't want to linger around as the hall around you collapses or zombies begin to emerge from cracks in the walls since you've stolen the precious artifact that they've been charged to protect. Get what you need and get out, otherwise you risk losing everything you came in with. You can see the narrative tension and release inherent in this kind of storytelling. It tends to lean itself into a particular kind of story, especially on surface level, but I do believe that there is a sense of mystery and discovery just as applicable to almost any artful experience. When I open a book or push play on a song I've never heard before, I may have some expectations, but there's always a possibility for a hard left or right turn. How hard those turns go can be challenging to determine but really rewarding when mastered. The clash of blades gives rise to a haunting, unsteady chime that echoes in this hall. You are a whirling top of cloak and steel. Explosions of sparks and blasts of arcane force bounce around, forming a lattice of stinging tripwires. Jin dives to fire a bolt in the back of this sorcerer, while Zeph brings down a powerful daylight enchantment to the space, temporarily blinding them. Eusidrus, summoning the ancient magic lying at rest in this buried catacomb, pulls the stone from the walls and shapes them into rough-hewn stocks. Finally held in place, you plunge your sword into the exposed belly of the gray monster, whose shrieks transcend sound and rattle your soul before fading as his body collapses inward, turning to ash as you retract. Nothing but a pile remains on the sundered circle of runes, now smudged and clumping within the lines of blood. Sephrine and Eusidrus shuffle out the prisoners, hungry and tired, and ever thankful to you for saving their lives. Only Jin and yourself remain inside, and Jin takes one look around this room and says, There's nothing even in here. What was all this for? Seemingly forgetful of the lives she just saved. She storms out to the light of day in a huff. When you notice, all of the statues lying on the ground that still retain a semblance of their shape hold their right fists across their hearts. Once you've mapped out your dungeon, drawn up the rooms, placed monsters, hidden treasure, determined what skills people need to use in order to solve those puzzles, all that jazz, you've already done the hardest part, which is starting. Just like we established earlier. Matt even says in his dungeon design video, starting is 80% of finishing. For a lot of people with unfinished projects, it may not feel true, but... I would just conjecture that 80% of people never even get past the first stage. However, just as important is knowing when to walk away. That finishing portion is usually hard because you're getting in your head. Will my players find this interesting? Is this room necessary? Should I move this pit filled with spikes five feet closer to the entrance of this antechamber? All of those questions are valid. 
but they can easily get in the way, leading you down a path to a dead end where a portcullis slams down behind you, trapping you in your own second guesses. Remember, a dungeon in the way we are using it is both a place with a mystery to uncover and a prison. Don't trap yourself inside. Anytime I have played in a dungeon as a player or DM, I had fun. And I don't remember any specifics about how it was laid out. I remember the mystery of not knowing what was around any corner, the vibes, huge grand set pieces with detailed descriptions for set dressing. I remember the obsidian black ice pyramid where my players found a trash chute that deposited them directly into the throne room of a clan of zombie ice giants. I don't remember whether the chute was 5 feet or 15 feet across. I remember the chasm in a mine my players found where the gravity was suddenly reversed, causing them to fly upward into the ceiling and being spat out at the beginning if they let go of a rope. I barely remember what enemies I had pursuing them inside. Go big, try wild things, and as Matt says, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. If it's working, don't feel the need to pile it on. Puzzles and traps are fun, but no one will miss what you cut before they got there or what they didn't find. It's like that one small line in a script you really love or a super technical bit of sound design. They're amazing things that complicate and inspire awe and danger, but they are not necessities. You can make entire dungeons out of them, but not every dungeon needs them. You examine the walls. Dark, cold, empty stone. A brazier for offerings in the previous room, an immaculate triptych, a hidden archway, yet no bodies in sight. No headstones, no coffins, an empty tomb. You take a knee, fold your head down, and place your fist across your heart, blade on the ground in front of you, as if in offering. I swear to fight chaos in all of its forms, to uphold order by honor of my word. Then, a low, rumbling sound scraping stone on stone, and the wall in front of you rises, followed by the scent of old incense and decaying flowers. Walking forward, a single torch is lit, held in the hand of a tall statue on a pedestal, a knight in polished marble gleaming as if carved the day before, surrounded by five sarcophagi, arranged in a semicircle around him. Reaching the statue, you can see in his other hand a gleaming mace covered in glyphs. You reach out, feeling compelled to remove the weapon, its power calling to you, saying, you are worthy. You touch the hilt, and the sarcophagi begin to rumble. You look around, panicked, but cannot remove your hand. The top slabs slide open, 
and spectral hands reach out, attached to ghastly figures hoisting themselves upright. You flex every muscle you can, but you're trapped. Your mind won't tell your body to let go. The five stand up and climb out of their tombs, and in this sepulchre, they stand sentry but motionless. You almost tear your arm off your shoulder, pulling. Glancing around, their eyeless sockets are locked on you. A tear falls from one of your eyes as you look into the face of a long dead warrior, and when it drips onto the stone, you glance down and then up at the face once more. The eyeless socket almost stares through you. Endless oceans of void and time unfold in its darkness, and you feel yourself becoming lost in it all. You feel the room slip from you, the edges of your vision receding into darkness, until just before complete oblivion ensconces you, you are snapped back into the room where the figure simply nods. And all five of the figures collapse into motes of silvery white light that drift to the ground and fade, shining like your teardrop on the stone floor. Your grip slightly loosens. The momentum of your pulling kicks in and you fall backward, mason hand. Gathering yourself, you feel the shockingly light mace in your hand. Swing it several times and holster it to your belt. Wearily, you wipe the line of the tear from your face. Exit the sepulcher. Cross the magic circle of blood. Squeeze past the swinging scythe. Move around the lit brazier and walk up the stairs to the slowly creeping dawn light, inching its way up the sky, lighting your friends' silhouettes as they tend to the wounded. Jin sighs in displeasure upon seeing the mace at your side, while Eusidrus gives you a hug, slapping you on the back and commending you. Zephyrine finishes tying a bandage on one of the salvaged and turns to you. With a smirk on her face, she asks, On to the next one, then? If we make a world our goal, we may never really be ready. If we make a dungeon our goal, we can be ready in a few hours and your players will love it. This really helped me when I replaced the idea of D&D game in my mind with podcast. If I try to make the next serial or This American Life or, you know, God help us, Joe Rogan, I'll never be ready. But if I make one piece, one story, one audio documentary, I can be ready in much less time, and somebody will like it, even if it's just my mom. <laughs> and this is true for any type of creative endeavor. You know, Right now, your audience isn't the entire world. It's the people sitting around your kitchen table with you. Now you can replace it with song or movie or dance or game or book. Whatever you're making, 
Creativity needs boundaries. Heroes don't emerge when there isn't something to save or conquer. You're a hero in this tale, but not on a hero's journey that's been condensed into 90 minutes. You're the one trekking to what feels like the end of the earth to get some weird MacGuffin to revive the ancient prophet to learn the ancient knowledge so you can prevent the apotheosis of some demon lord and prevent the downfall of the firmament. It's a grind. It's called a dungeon crawl for a reason. More than likely, there's some hidden treasure at the end. You Only Guide Me By Surprise is written, produced, and edited by me, Landry Ayers. If you like this story, please feel free to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and please tell your friends about it. This episode wouldn't have been possible without the inspiration from Matt Colville of MCDM Productions. If you are at all interested in Dungeons & Dragons, or any other tabletop games, or even just general game design, please go ahead and check out his YouTube channels, Matthew Colville, that's C-O-L-V-I-L-L-E, and MCDM, and his website, mcdmproductions.com, where you can find links to all of their resources, including the pre-order link for their recently successfully kickstarted Flea Mortals, the MCDM monster book. It's cool stuff. We also have new show artwork by me, Landry. I do want to go out of my way and thank the artist Mandy Paris McCasland for her original artwork that gave the show its identity for the first year of episodes. It really, really helped me come to understand what I want the show to be thought of by people who have never heard of it before. And the artwork is a big part of that, so I want to thank her for going out on a limb and creating something for a show that didn't really have an identity yet. Which brings me to my final note. It has been just over one year since I launched this feed. For those of you who listen, thank you so much for taking the time out of the day to listen to these humble audio stories. There's so much to occupy your eyes and ears today that if I manage to get you here, then it means you've sacrificed time that could have been spent on myriad other really, really cool things. So I am really thankful. Thank you so much. I fell just short of my one episode per month goal for uploads this year, but it was also really crucial for helping me learn what my limits are, what I want the show to be, and what my strengths and weaknesses as a producer are. Lesson learned. If there's anything you're curious to hear about, you want to get updates on a story because things have changed, or just want to chat about other stories, please feel free to DM me on Twitter at the handle at Landry E. Ayers, or contact me at the links on my website, LandryAyers.com. That's L-A-N-D-R-Y-A-Y-R-E-S dot com. Thanks again, and you'll hear more from me soon.